Pushkin. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member, FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan, Chase & Co. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. It all started with two federal agents who heard a rumor. She mentioned, well, there is this alleged murder to have taken place. There was just one problem. They had no clue who the victim was. We have to do our job, and we have to find out who did they kill. It had been 15 years since this alleged murder. Was it still possible to unearth the truth? I used to watch um, the Unsolved Mystery shows, and I often thought about calling because I was like, this is, this is not right. How can a person get killed and no one knows anything? I'm Jake Halpern, and this is Deep Cover the Nameless Man. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to hear the entire season right now, ad-free, subscribe to Pushkin Plus on our Apple Podcast show page or on pushkin.fm slash plus. From Pushkin Industries, this is Deep Background, the show where we explore the stories behind the stories in the news. I'm Noah Feldman. This week, no story is more pressing in the United States and elsewhere than the fall of Kabul in the aftermath of the U.S. announcement that it is imminently withdrawing from Afghanistan. As this story broke, I knew that the person I wanted most to hear from about it was Dr. Emil Simpson. Emil is a former British Army officer who served three tours of duty in Afghanistan with the Royal Gurkha Rifles. He is a scholar who wrote an extraordinary book, War from the Ground Up, 21st Century Combat as Politics, that described new forms of warfare, both from the standpoint of the soldiers on the ground and from the big picture perspective of military strategy. He's also a scholar of international law and international relations, and currently is a barrister in London working on international and commercial matters. Emil, thank you so much for joining me, especially on short notice. Emil, let's start with the immediate question of the evacuation, which we're all watching in real time. How is it going? And how would you compare it to other instances 
of evacuation from Afghanistan, since eventually it seems any power that decides that it wants to govern Afghanistan ends up evacuating in a hurry. Yes, well, from what I understand, um, the evacuation, the, the plan is to complete it in two or three days. The, and that's the evacuation of our forces. It's a question mark as to how we're going to get out interpreters and others who helped us who are not part of that evacuation. And that's clearly a severe problem. The, in, in terms of the kind of very near-term situation, the basic problem is that because the US evacuated Bagram Air Base some time ago, there's only one airfield effectively in Afghanistan that we can use, and that's, that's Kabul Airport, which only has one runway and is overlooked by high ground. So it's clearly very vulnerable. So you could have uh, you know, an accident. So regardless of what Taliban leadership say, a kind of unit on the ground that doesn't follow them might decide to take a pot shot at a plane, and that clearly would be disastrous. That, that's the kind of flashpoint that could happen. But short of that, it looks like we're just going to get out without further... Um, do really, as, as long as there's no accident. You know, for me personally, um, I do remember vividly the, not just the interpreters, but of course them too, but also just the ordinary um, Afghan soldiers and especially, you know, their officers who are basically the people I was working with on a daily basis who are my age. These aren't the kind of high level officials in Kabul who are corrupt. These are guys who, and women too, who were you know, very brave and very hopeful, very idealistic. They'd grown up really with this new government, or at least they, they didn't remember the Taliban because they're too young, um, wanted a sort of better Afghanistan. And they really were putting their lives on the line for this project. And those are the people who have basically been abandoned, you know, unlike us. I mean, Western forces obviously fought extremely hard too. These guys were deployed constantly on the ground. You know, they were in Helmand for 10 years without relief. I mean, maybe a week back in Kabul or whatever. But basically, they were just constantly there. This was their life. This wasn't at all. This was their life. And they didn't have the option to leave Afghanistan. I don't know whether it crossed their mind that you know, one day they might have to evacuate. But that's the position we're in now. We, we absolutely have a moral obligation to evacuate these people. You know, regardless of whether we leave Afghanistan, we should be ashamed of abandoning these people. Because this isn't; these aren't kind of numbers. These are sort of real people. And personally, I think it's not good enough just to evacuate the interpreters, because yes, we shouldn't evacuate those people. But there's a whole bunch of very brave Afghan junior officers and you know equivalent in the government who have served us, and we should evacuate them and their families too. That that is absolutely a moral responsibility the West um, bears at the moment. In terms of historical comparisons. The evacuation of Kabul in uh, 1842 after the first Afghan war, when the entire British army was destroyed. So that that clearly is a an instant of a evacuation that went far worse. But you know, an example of that evacuation that went better is that would be the Soviet experience, in which the Soviet main force left Afghanistan in 1989, having trained a, an Afghan forces of roughly the same size, about 300,000, and those Afghan forces fought on for another two years until the Soviet Union itself collapsed in 1991. And the, the Soviet force also counterattacked critically. So when the Mujahideen massed immediately after the Soviet withdrawal, the Soviet main force withdrawal, the Mujahideen tried to attack Jalalabad in a conventional kind of attack. The Afghan Soviet army with Soviet air support and some artillery support counterattacked and severely defeated the Mujahideen, who basically fragmented. 
and that bought them more time. So there are important comparisons to be made in terms of the, the historical analogies. Another analogy that's foremost in the minds of Americans, of course, is the American withdrawal from South Vietnam in the wake of the fall of Saigon. As we know, in that instance, some people who had been allied with the United States and had helped the United States were able to, to get out, but the great majority were essentially left to their fates, some to be uh, oppressed or even killed by the North Vietnamese, others to desperately get onto boats and hope that the rafts or barely seaworthy vessels they were on would take them somewhere. And certainly from news reports, it sounds as though there may be a significant number of people who worked with the allies in Afghanistan who, who don't manage to get out. I was wondering whether when you were on the ground now a bit more than a decade ago uh, as an officer, whether the locals who worked with you were already thinking about what would happen if the war were lost and they were left to their to their fates. Was that on their minds? Did this, was it something you discussed with them or was it something that nobody wanted to talk about because it was too terrible a prospect? It depended on where you were in the country. I think in southern Afghanistan, people did not think that the army would hold out in the countryside, at least not in the whole countryside, because the Taliban is predominantly a, a Christian movement from the south and east of Afghanistan. People did not think that the north of Afghanistan or the centre or the big cities would fall to the Taliban because that's that's the Soviet analogy. In 1988, the, the, the Mujahideen took the countryside, especially in the south and the east. They did not take the north or the centre or the big cities. It, it, it is heart, heart-rendering seeing or, or hearing about the experience of those who worked with us who couldn't get out. And indeed, it's particularly poignant when one has oneself given those assurances, not necessarily in absolute terms, but certainly implied, you know, when you're leading a platoon of soldiers and you go to an Afghan village, you're based there for six months, and the local elder or, you know, their, their people are trying to make decisions about whether to support you or not, and you're trying to encourage them, you are implicitly giving assurances. And sure, you're not giving assurances in your personal name. It's not you personally making the promise. You're a... You're acting as a representative and channeling national policy. But they are nonetheless real promises, and there are real life and death, effectively, decisions and risk calculations made on the basis of those assurances. And so when those people are sold out, which they absolutely have been, you know, you can say, well, that's not in the national interest. That doesn't change the fact that promises have been given. And if you're the one who actually gave the promises, as, you know, thousands of Western military personnel and diplomats and aid workers would have done, that's a very different moral proposition. That's very tough, and I can imagine what, what you're feeling around it. What went wrong in the most recent period of time? I mean, the US, the UK, other actors spent upwards of a trillion dollars on trying to shore up, train, and essentially buck up an Afghan military. And yet it seemed that once the final withdrawal was announced the response of the Afghan military effectively was to lose morale, think that it couldn't win, and give up the ghost relatively quickly. Why? What's happening here? Hmm. The first thing to say, and I think this is not a story that's really cut through in the last couple of days, but even in the last five years, frankly, is the number of Afghan casualties. So the basic message from President Biden is the Afghans uh, won't fight for themselves, therefore Western soldiers should not fight um, for them when they won't fight for themselves. Were that true, that would be a good argument. But that's not the case, at least in a five-year time frame. So 
although the casualty numbers are estimates, it's roughly a ballpark figure. So if you look at the, the Brookings Institution Afghan Index, which is the most reliable source, they've estimated 45,000, so that's 45,000 Afghan security forces, that's police and army deaths between 2014 and 2020, so just over five, six years. So you compare that to uh, US forces, which are just under 2,500 deaths, and then coalition deaths of another 2,000 and another 2,000 roughly contractors. So about five or 6,000 um, Western deaths, if you like. The Afghan forces have taken about eight times more dead. And then you've, you're going to have a factor of about three in terms of wounded from that. So the idea that the Afghan army have not fought is, is not right. 45,000 of them, if that estimate is right, or even close to being right, have fought and died doing exactly that. Were they fighting for their government? No, their government is corrupt and rotten, and everyone knows that. They're fighting for their families, who, unlike their leadership, don't have the option of leaving Afghanistan. They were fighting in remote provinces with their backs to the wall for the last five years, basically getting hammered and taking a lot of casualties. Granted, they weren't fighting completely independently. They had crucially Western logistical support. The Afghan army, mainly because of massive corruption at the higher levels of government and the army, was unable to do logistics. You put, to, you put those two factors together and you've got an army that's basically been hammered in terms of casualties and has fought bravely, but it, its morale is very low. The Taliban at, uh, attack right at the very moment at which the, the, that Afghan force has to adapt to having no logistic support. So they can't get their casualties out. They can't get ammunition and other supplies forward. And at the same time, they see various members of their, their, their government at the cabinet level basically tweeting, oh, I've resigned, I'm leaving my leaving Kabul to join my family in Dubai or whatever. And funnily enough, morale collapses, you know, query whether a Western force would be any different. You know, it's entirely understandable why the Afghan regular forces, isolated and abandoned in these provinces, basically gave up. Um, it was also clever, the final point of the Taliban to attack the southern towns first because they basically attacked um, the southern, the big southern towns and that triggered the Afghan government to deploy its reserves, i.e. special forces, kind of elite units. They went south and then the Taliban switched their main effort and attacked the north in conjunction with clever political tactics from negotiating surrenders and stuff. And you put that together, it's not surprising that the whole thing fell apart. Emil, a question that's really very pressing for a lot of listeners, myself included, is do you think this withdrawal was correct? Was it the right thing to do? Because part of what you're saying in terms of the directionality of the war suggests that there wasn't really a viable way either for the security forces to beat the Taliban or even to just hold them off indefinitely. And that starts to contribute to the idea that withdrawal was the right thing to do. But of course, the alternative picture would be one in which there were ways to withdraw eventually, but to do it in a different way that would have a chance of stopping the country from falling into the hands of the Taliban in this way. So what is your view on that? Was the withdrawal the right thing to do now? Well, I think there's the, there's the military side and the political side. On the military side, the US could, in theory, have stayed there indefinitely. It had a force of roughly 2,500 by the end, spending roughly $3 billion a month on a military budget of around just under $800 billion a year. That's significant, but it's not a huge cost objectively. So you could just carry it on. I should mention that um, eight US soldiers died in 2020. So that's a serious number, but it pales in comparison to the Afghan casualties numbers I, I mentioned. Politically, clearly, there was no appetite for that. So how do you square that? Um, on the one hand, you've got this fact that when the US is there as a backstop, 
providing air support, providing logistics, crucially, the Afghan forces can carry on. You could have maintained the stalemate indefinitely, but there's no political will for the indefinite presence. Answer, you have to get a peace deal. So you have to um, use the stalemate as leverage to get a peace deal with the Taliban. That peace deal wasn't coming. I, I think a, a, a mistake was not to counterattack in the last two weeks. The Taliban attack kind of paralyzed us. They were too fast. Um, we, we, we appeared um, unable to move almost. I mentioned, you know, in 1989, uh, the Soviets did counterattack at Jalalabad. And, and when a guerrilla um, force changes from being a guerrilla force to being a conventional force, as they must do to take a country, that's their most vulnerable moment. That's when you can really fight them for once conventionally. And it wouldn't have been very hard to inflict serious losses on them and basically force them into, you know, at least at least um, give the peace deal a chance. The Taliban, I think, were surprised themselves at how easily they took Kabul. And indeed, you know, you're talking about Saigon earlier. Note how um, in 72, in Easter 72, the North Vietnamese also tried to attack the Easter offensive. And um, the Americans did counterattack and um, surprised um, the North Vietnamese with their political will. And bought more time. Indeed, bought time for the, the peace deal. And I mean, obviously, it collapsed in the end, but bought more time. So, you know, a counterattack would have helped to get that peace deal. Would it have happened? Who knows? It's impossible to be um, certain about these things. But I think um, we, we, we should have counterattacked. In terms of the wider decision, you know, it's for the US president to judge the US national interest. I'm not American. It's not for me to say that the Americans should or shouldn't bear that cost. That's President Biden. And if he thinks that, that cost is too much, I mean, I think people in the Biden administration would probably respond to that by saying that there was effectively a counterattack in the second term of the Obama administration, and that that was that was the effort that they hoped would be able to turn the tide, but that it failed, that then the Trump administration was just in a holding pattern and that Biden had already decided himself, and this is pretty clear, he had already decided now seven years ago or eight years ago that this wasn't worth continuing. And once he had that view, the possibility of motivating a counterattack would have been pretty difficult because the Taliban would have just tried to wait it out. You know, they would have said, listen, you don't really mean it. So if he had said, listen, we're just counterattacking in order to change the strategic calculus and make the Taliban negotiate, which was a version of what the United States had already said between 2012 and 2015, it just wouldn't have worked. Yeah. You put your 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 finger on the pulse of the matter, if you like. The key is surprise. You've got to make the Taliban think it's in the minds of the enemy. That, that's where victory um, lies. It's psychological state, if you like. And surprise works. Um, in Afghanistan, the surge was not surprise. It was telegraphed. The idea was, we'll surge for three years, and then we'll draw down. So it was all very predictable, very telegraphed, no surprise. And indeed, this points to a broader failing in the Western approach strategy, at least in my view, whereby we think strategy is a kind of form of project management. It's the kind of strategy taught in business schools where, you know, if you want to build a house or something. You get your workers, your money, and your materials, and you kind of put, put them in a spreadsheet. And, you know, things might go wrong, like you might get some bad weather or something for a month, but and that might delay you. But ultimately, you can get from A to B for the purely kind of technocratic approach where you just put resources on a spreadsheet and you project manage with no account of the enemy, no account of the enemy whatsoever, as if war was some kind of scientific endeavor. And that's just completely wrong. War is all about um, getting into the mind of the enemy. It's about initiative, seizing the initiative and holding the initiative. And it's much more psychological than that. And in Afghanistan, actually, you know, in retrospect, maybe we shouldn't have surged in, in, in 2009. Maybe we should actually have de-surged and actually put some pressure on the Afghan government to do more themselves. 
But ultimately, if you step away from all this, it, it's not about these kind of set template approaches. You know, does a surge work in the abstract? You can't tell. The question is, can you uh, use surprise to regain the initiative, sow doubt in the minds of your opponent, such as to get them to at least think, oh, maybe it is my interest to do a peace deal because I don't know what the outcome is going to be. That wasn't the case here. The Taliban could totally plan around the US and Western plan and then hit the forces, Afghan forces, extremely hard when we took logistics support away and basically win. We'll be back in a moment. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase, NA member, FDIC, 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Co. It all started with two federal agents who heard a rumor. She mentioned, well, there is this alleged murder to have taken place. There was just one problem. They had no clue who the victim was. We have to do our job, and we have to find out... Who did they kill? It had been 15 years since this alleged murder. Was it still possible to unearth the truth? I used to watch um, the Unsolved Mystery shows, and I often thought about calling because I was like, this is, this is not right. How can a person get killed and no one knows anything? I'm Jake Halpern. And this is Deep Cover, The Nameless Man. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to hear the entire season right now, ad-free, subscribe to Pushkin Plus on our Apple Podcast show page or on pushkin.fm slash plus. Emil, I'm really fascinated by what you've just said. The idea that somehow the U.S. in particular, maybe Western forces more generally, tended to think about Afghanistan as though it were a war without an enemy. You know, a war you're fighting in your own head where you think that logistics are really about what you're going to do seems to fit into a kind of systemic failure throughout this war, maybe deriving from the fact that in the early invasion, the Taliban ran away relatively quickly and were then not treated as a serious opponent, a serious enemy who had to be surprised and, and engaged, but were rather thought of almost as though they were the drip, drip, drip of a body of water. And the question was, could we hold out against that drip, 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 rather than could we actually conceptualize the enemy as a set of human beings, as yeah. an other 
who, who needed to be engaged, which, as you say, is crucial to warfare. Why do you think, I mean, when we turn to lessons learned here, one of the crucial ones is surely that's no way to fight a war. You know, if you're going to fight a war, you have to conceptualize the enemy. You have to put your mind inside the mind of the enemy and you have to do the things that will defeat the enemy. And why? Why were? Why did the United States approach war in this way? Is it something about our training? Is it something about how we conceptualize war? Is it something about the tremendous disparity between our resources and the resources of the enemy? What 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 put us in a position to make these mistakes, which to me, as you depict them, sound rather fundamental. Yes, well, it's, I mean, the, the term war is a good place to start. I mean, clearly, Afghanistan's war in a sense that there is a, you know, combat going, a high level of violence going on on the ground, and that the kind of combat tactics are, are not dissimilar across different kinds of wars. But really, there is a fundamental difference between interstate war, which are finite in the sense that there, that there are two governments with whom you, 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 you can negotiate a peace deal. So, Effectively, you've got two kind of hierarchies fighting each other. You know, you use military force against the base of the hierarchy, the army, and that sort of tingles up the nerve system of the, the state, the other side, to a government, and that government kind of gets the message and is defeated. That's completely different when you're dealing with a network. A network is flat and loose. There's no real leadership structure. So how are you going to win in the kind of political sense? You can't. Actually, you're managing an ongoing security problem without trying to escalate and without getting sucked into things like nation building, really just trying to deal with the security side of things. And war is not often even that appropriate a label. So it's much more often sometimes akin to policing operations where, you know, in a Western city, no one expects the police to defeat crime in a decisive sense rather than manage it. Now, clearly, it's not exactly policing, but there is a spectrum of activity. And treating these conflicts as war with these kind of expectations of decisive outcomes where you have surges for like three years and somehow expect the military to deliver you a decisive outcome in three years, that's, that's not helpful. Actually, you, you, you need to have l- lower intensity but longer-term presence with lower expectations of what you can achieve in order to manage um, risk over longer time frames without these kind of fantastic expectations of decisive victories. And so there's a spectrum in terms of political outcomes. Is there even an enemy? Or are you dealing with a kind of kaleidoscopic bunch of factions who can change depending on how you define the enemy? I think in Afghanistan, that was an issue. You know, we, we started off finding our enemy narrowly as al-Qaeda. And, and that was broadly the, the, the position until 2005. And then in 2005, we went into the, the south and the east in, um, in bulk. There were already some forces, but really very few forces before that, especially in the south. And we started sort of treating everyone who shot at us as, you know, the enemy and attributing to them a single corporate identity, i.e. the Taliban. And actually, that wasn't the case. There were lots and lots of different factions on the ground, and, and, and by precisely disaggregating a networked franchise movement into its constituents' parts, you, you can use much less force, as little force as possible, because you're only using force against the really hardcore. And that's absolutely not what we did. We, we used force much too broadly against far too many factions because we didn't have that political, low-level political insight, which is so crucial. And thus, we very quickly found ourselves swimming up, upstream against an ever-expanding insurgency. So a lesson here, you know, not just at the tactical level, but at the kind of global level too, is always to disaggregate, to try to not group everyone in the same brush. Otherwise, you'll end up fighting kind of everyone, really. And, you know, that's, um, that goes to basically back to this concept of war, not treating everything through this binary paradigm of war in which there's a clear line between military and political activity. That's not the case, especially in today's context with the information revolution, whereby, you know, you get a lot more networks. 
What was your experience of that when you were on the ground? I mean, when, did you find yourself um, able to try to do that kind of disaggregation at the local level and not just treat anybody who might be shooting at you and your soldiers as definitively the Taliban? Um, or was it simply the case that the lack of differentiation at the higher level of command made it all but impossible for you, uh, you know, to do differently on a on a day in and day out basis? No, very much so. I mean, on my first tour, not so much because I was a, I was a platoon commander. But on my second tour, when I was actually working on planning operations, and my third tour, I was very much able to do that. And it's totally possible. You need to think about things differently. You need to be doing network analysis on the ground, understanding who's who. I mean, this is almost obvious. You know, if you're the British Army in Northern Ireland, it's like going in there and saying, oh, well, what, what's a Catholic? What's a Protestant? You know, th these are the fundamental kind of cultural drivers of this conflict. And we just went in southern Afghanistan thinking everyone's either Afghan government or Taliban. And actually, it's much more sophisticated than that. And it's not particularly hard to kind of find out who these tribes are. You know, there's the Barakzai, Alizai, Ishikzai, um, Popolzai, and they all have different motivations. And then there's the narco dealers as well. And you can quite easily find out what these different cultural kind of groups are just by asking people. It is absolutely doable. But a problem, a further problem is the nature of civil military relations. The paradigm we have is very much a one-way model. It's the idea that um, there's this very hard division between the, the political side and the military side, and neither side shall trespass. I mean, that comes from a really post-Korean war model where you didn't want to get the military with their things on the nuclear trigger because then you could have a nuclear war. And that makes sense. So it absolutely makes sense that the military should stay out of um, politics in a kind of political sense. And indeed, in that context, in the nuclear context, it should stay out of that, those kind of decisions too. But in a counterinsurgency, you absolutely need people on the ground to be able to say, no, this actually at a political level is not working. We shouldn't be... Um, pushing this policy line because it doesn't work with this tribe. We should be doing that. We shouldn't be doing this. So, for example, the classic example in southern Afghanistan was narcotics. The anti-narco mission pretty much alienated everybody. You know, query why we were doing it. Were we there to fight terrorism or drugs? I mean, we could fight drugs. That's a political decision. But we would, we would cut about 90% of the enemy out if we didn't fight drugs. Um, no one would listen to the military on the ground. That's not our job. We're not allowed to talk about politics. We, you, you just fight the enemy. Um, will do the politics. This idea that politics is something that's done like higher up, it's um, not the right approach and it challenges and requires us to reconfigure this paradigm of um, civil military relations. It needs to be much more fluid and dynamic and, and flatter. What I hear you saying there, and I think this is also, as I read it, one of the themes of your terrific book is that it would be a mistake to think that in a world where the enemy is networked and flat, that the way to fight it is in some hierarchical sense where the decisions about quote-unquote politics are made somewhere up the chain and then the decisions about military tactics are made you know, down on the ground. In fact, to fight a war against a flat networked enemy, you have to be flatter, you have to be more networked, and we have to break down the artificial distinction between a political judgment and a tactical judgment, especially in an, in an operation that has certain features of trying to keep the peace, namely a counterinsurgency. No, exactly. There's this expression, out-gorilla the gorilla. You know, if you're a Western, big, heavy Western force, you're basically a kind of elephant trying to catch a kind of mouse. And so obviously, when the mouse hears the elephant going through the, the jungle, he hears it from miles away and runs away, and it's impossible to catch the mouse. Emil, I want to turn now, in our concluding moments of our conversation, to the question of how much it matters for the U.S. role in the international order that the U.S. managed to lose this war. Now, one could say... 
as was the takeaway from the Vietnam War, where the U.S. learned that it couldn't defeat an enemy like South Vietnam. Here, the takeaway is that the U.S. couldn't defeat a persistent insurgent force like the Taliban, but that that doesn't necessarily mean that the position of the U.S. vis-a-vis China with respect to Taiwan, for example, um, or vis-a-vis its position in other places in the world where its geostrategic power remains crucial has really fundamentally changed. Or you could say, listen, there must be a bigger takeaway of a failure like this. 20 years, a trillion dollars, failure to achieve its goals, failure to learn the lessons of counterinsurgency that should have been learned from Vietnam surely has consequences. And I'm wondering where you come down in that grand debate, which is really just beginning now. Yeah, in terms of international order, Noah, the key is what happens next in Afghanistan. So question one, who really are the Taliban? Their PR is all very rosy and glossy. They say they're going to have an inclusive government, including women, for example, and have an amnesty for um, government officials and everyone, in fact. And if that were really were the case, then the West could live with that, and that won't badly damage US prestige, if you like. On the other hand, if one, their PR is not true to reality, um, then that wouldn't be the case. But the real issue is that can the Taliban even maintain control of the country? They've been united through a common enemy for the past 20 years. And now, actually, the Taliban being a franchise movement, the question is whether those different factions will start to come apart. So you've got some more moderate, some more extreme, and the whole country could send in civil war, creating a haven for terrorists. That would clearly be extremely damaging for US credibility in terms of having to almost potentially go back in there and deal with that, or just take it on risk and just accept the consequences. Neither of those are good options. Beyond Afghanistan and beyond the kind of terrorism question, I don't think that this is going to undermine US alliances in um, East Asia. On the contrary, the whole point of this move was to reinforce um, alliances in Asia. So I don't think that's going to be undermined. But perhaps the contrarian answer is that is the West being um, repeating the mistake of not using surprise, not being imaginative here? If uh, the West and specifically the United States starts just putting all its effort into focusing on Taiwan, really, and the defense in the Far East, in a very conventional sense, is that not going to open the door for you know, states that basically want to undermine US and Western interests across the rest of the world, so China and Russia primarily, using all kinds of means, not just military means, but also geo-economic means and informational means, and all kinds of a sort of grey zone tactics we've seen in the past um, 10 years or so, to undermine interests, Western interests in the rest of the world, while we're focused on, on, on the Far East in a very conventional sense. That's the actual risk. And there could be a, um, a kind of ironic outcome where the West has all this effort to kind of shift, pivot to Asia, if you like, and telegraph its intentions in a very unimaginative way. And the other countries just plan around that. And actually, there isn't any big fight over Taiwan, but there's no sort of decisive moment at which US power ends. Rather, there's kind of death by a thousand cuts, which indeed is how the British Empire basically ended and how most empires end, in fact, if indeed empire is the right analogy. But the point is, in terms of the kind of superpower, is that really what's going to happen? I think actually that's more likely to happen than any kind of decisive battle. And really, if um, we want to, you know, stand by our values and Western values, which I think personally are worth fighting for, or at least worth standing up for, not, I don't mean fighting necessarily in a literal sense, it requires us to be more agile and to think about strategy in a way that actually uses the values of surprise and flexibility of means, not always focusing on the, on the military um, side of things, but at the same time, 
where there is a need to inter- intervene, not to do regime change, but on the contrary, regime support. You know, I gave the example of France and Mali earlier. Then we should do that and not always be completely predictable. We'll be right back. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase, NA member FDIC, 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Co. It all started with two federal agents who heard a rumor. She mentions, well, there is this alleged murder to have taken place. There was just one problem. They had no clue who the victim was. We have to do our job, and we have to find out Who did they kill? It had been 15 years since this alleged murder. Was it still possible to unearth the truth? I used to watch um, the Unsolved Mystery shows, and I often thought about calling, because I was like, "This this is not right. How can a person get killed and no one knows anything? I'm Jake Halpern. And this is Deep Cover, The Nameless Man. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to hear the entire season right now, ad-free, subscribe to Pushkin Plus on our Apple Podcast show page or on pushkin.fm slash plus. Emil, I want to thank you for this fascinating account of events on the ground and their deeper meaning um, in Afghanistan. And also, of course, for your combination of being a soldier on the ground and then a a scholar explaining things uh, to the world and to all of us. For me, uh, talking to you, I was just deeply struck by the reality of the number of Afghan dead, 45,000 Afghan dead uh, soldiers is close to the total number that the U.S. lost in in Vietnam. It's a very significant cost. And very struck by your observation that it wasn't just that the U.S. and the Afghan security forces lost the war, but that the Taliban really won it. I was also very, very struck by your observation that we failed to think about this war from the standpoint of the enemy and therefore failed to have the advantage of surprise. I was really struck by your point that in a networked world where the enemy is flat and networked, we need to to do the same. And then if you want to catch a mouse, you can't be an elephant. Maybe you actually need to be something closer to a cat. And last but not least, just very struck by your point that 
the deep failure of the U.S. here does have broader geopolitical consequences that we're going to be grappling with in the future. Um, so I want to, again, thank you for your, uh, for your analysis and for your commentary, uh, for your service, and for coming on Deep Background to explain this to us on, on short notice. Thank you, Emil. Thank you very much. Deep Background is brought to you by Pushkin Industries. Our producer is Mo Laborde. Our engineer is Ben Tolliday. And our showrunner is Sophie Crane McKibben. Editorial support from Noam Osband. Theme music by Luis Guerra. At Pushkin, thanks to Mia Lobel, Julia Barton, Lydia Jean Cott, Heather Fain, Carly Migliori, Maggie Taylor, Eric Sandler, and Jacob Weisberg. You can find me on Twitter at Noah R. Feldman. I also write a column for Bloomberg Opinion, which you can find at Bloomberg.com slash Feldman. To discover Bloomberg's original slate of podcasts, go to Bloomberg.com slash podcasts. And if you liked what you heard today, please write a review or tell a friend. This is Deep Background. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. It all started with two federal agents who heard a rumor. She mentions, well, there is this alleged murder to have taken place. There was just one problem. They had no clue who the victim was. We have to do our job, and we have to find out who did they kill. It had been 15 years since this alleged murder. Was it still possible to unearth the truth? I used to watch um, the Unsolved Mystery shows, and I often thought about calling because I was like, this is, this is not right. How can a person get killed and no one knows anything? I'm Jake Halpern, and this is Deep Cover, The Nameless Man. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to hear the entire season right now, ad-free, subscribe to Pushkin Plus on our Apple Podcast show page or on pushkin.fm slash plus. Plus.